morning and let me say what an honor it is to be here. I love uh, country churches. Uh, my granddaddy and my grandmother and my mom and dad are buried up on a hill behind a country church, Victory Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia. In fact, the only time I have ever brought the special music in my entire life took place in that church when I was about six years old. And somehow my grandfather convinced me and the church allowed me to come up on the platform and do the song, Deep and Wide, Deep and Wide, There's a Fountain. So I'll stop right there. So I have flashbacks of that anytime I'm in a country church, and uh, it uh, makes me a little nervous. So I promise you I'll not go any further with that. And uh, let me also say uh, thank you for your love for uh, our children's homes. They are uh, very, very dear uh, to the heart of my wife and me. Uh, my wife grew up in a children's home. She lived in the Georgia Baptist Children's Home in Palmetto, Georgia, uh, just outside of Atlanta from the time she was nine until she was 18. And it was at that time she met the Lord Jesus as her Savior. And so we know personally uh, the value of that ministry, and so very thankful for your support of a very, very vital ministry here in North Carolina. Our text for this morning is found in a book that uh, its theme is clearly the glory of Christ in his church. It is the book of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through verse 16, and I'm giving it the title, A Manifesto for the 21st Century Church. Uh, you're celebrating 112 years, and that is a fantastic legacy. Uh, but there's always a danger to churches that have been around that long, and it's always dangerous for churches that have that kind of history because if we're not careful, uh, we can become nostalgic. Uh, we can be stuck in the past, and there's nothing wrong uh, with looking to the past and thanking God for those who have gone before us who were faithful uh, in the faith and who indeed honor the Lord Jesus Christ with their lives. But if we get stuck in the past, uh, we make a terrible mistake. In fact, it's probably sinful because God is not calling us to look and be stuck in the past, but God is calling us to look to where we are today and where we need to go in the future. And there are a number of biblical texts that talk about what the church ought to be. You can go to the Great Commission passage in Matthew chapter 28, where we're told at the very heart of the church is going and making disciples of all the nations. You could go to uh, the book of Acts in chapter 2, verses 40 through 47, where you have the birthday of the church. You could go to a text like uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Uh, the wonderful Bible teacher uh, Chuck Swindoll says, there you find a church with all the right stuff. And I would not disagree with that evaluation at all. But when you come to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, you almost have everything in it that God indeed longs for and desires to see in each and every local body of believers. And so what I'm going to do is move quickly because I have 10 points to this message. Now, don't, don't panic. Uh, don't uh, become uh, uh, overly anxious. Uh, I talk fast. 
You can listen in a hurry, and we'll move through these 10 observations in a measured time. But again, if you're a note taker, I'd even encourage you to jot some of them down because if you really want to know what God wants of this church today and in the future, we're going to see it all right here in Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. So number one, what does God want? He wants us to commit ourselves to live lives that point others to Jesus. Look at verse 1 through verse 3. Paul writes, I, therefore, a prisoner, and don't miss the next three words, for the Lord. Now you would say, wait, Danny, I've studied Ephesians. I know Ephesians is a prison epistle. I know that it was written at the same time as Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And in actuality, Paul was a prisoner of Rome. And Paul says, no. I am where I am, and I am going through what I'm going through because the Lord placed me here. I am a prisoner, not ultimately of Rome. I am a prisoner, ultimately, of uh, the Lord. And so, as his uh, captive, uh, I want to urge you. It could be translated, I want to encourage you to do what? To walk. Now, again, if you study Ephesians, you'll know that that image of walking appears repeatedly in verse uh, in chapter 4 and also in chapter 5. And the idea of walking simply has the idea of this is the kind of life you live. Uh, this is who you are day in and, and day out. This is who you are when you get up. This is who you are as you go throughout the day. This is who you are when you put your head on the pillow at night. This is who you really are. And so I want to urge you, I want to encourage you to what? Walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And he is talking about our calling to salvation. And he's talking, I believe, also about our calling to grow in Christ's likeness. And so what does he do? Well, in essence, he gives us a uh, summary, uh, a Reader's Digest version of the fruit of the Spirit, found both uh, in Galatians 5.22 and Galatians 5.23. And what does he say? Our calling should be characterized by humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, he wants us to live lives that give evidence of the transforming power of the gospel in our lives and lives that point others to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Today, uh, more than ever, uh, the distinctiveness of God's people as opposed to the character of the, of the world is going to be more and more evident. And the fact of the matter is a church needs, as you uh, did a moment ago, uh, you, you recited a, a confession of faith, a part of your confession of faith, and churches certainly need confessions of faith, but churches also need covenants. One of the things that I believe is going to become absolutely necessary across the board is that churches have not only a confession, this is what we believe. But they also have a covenant. This is how we live. This is how we serve one another. This is how we hold one another accountable. This is what is required for you to be a bona fide member of this particular community of faith. One of the things we're seeing today, especially among the younger generation, the millennial generation, uh, they take church membership rather seriously. Uh, They don't view it as our uh, right now, they believe church membership is an honor and a privilege. I have a son that pastors uh, is an elder at a church in Raleigh. 
has a weird name, Imago Dei Church. Imago Dei means image of God, so image of God church. Uh, they now, in their fourth year, run almost 800 people on any given Sunday. But they only have 450 members. You say, why? Because church membership is not a right. Church membership is a privilege. You have to confess certain things to be a member of that church. You have to covenant to do certain things to be a member of that church. It's not possible to be a member of that church if you're not in a small community group. They don't have a building like this. They don't have traditional Sunday school or Bible study, but they have home groups that meet every single week. And unless you are an active participant in that home group, they're delighted for you to come to the church. They're delighted for you to worship with them, but you're not going to be eligible for church membership. Why? Because they want to make sure that their covenanted community is pointing others to Jesus. We must commit ourselves to live lives that point others to Jesus. Secondly, verses 4 through 6, we should commit ourselves to believe the Bible and what it teaches. I love the confession that you articulated just a moment ago there, Article 1, in terms of what do we believe about the Bible. Well, in verses 4, 5, and 6, you have what many believe to be a, a mini confession of faith from a, the first century church. Uh, the word one dominates, appearing no less than seven times. And furthermore, it's rooted in Trinitarian doctrine. In fact, some have called verse 4 the verse of the Holy Spirit. They've called verse 5 the verse of God the Son. And they've called verse 6 the verse of God the Father. And I think they've got good ground for doing that. Look at it. Verse 4, there is one body. And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope, and that is the hope of our eternal salvation, the presence of Christ that belongs to your call. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And verse 6, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all of you. Do you realize this morning that our affirmation of the doctrine of the Trinity sets us apart from every other religion in the world? There is no other Trinitarian faith on the planet. Oh, there are monotheistic faiths. Judaism is monotheistic. Uh, Islam is monotheistic. But neither of them are Trinitarian, whereby they affirm the full deity of the Son, the full deity of the Spirit, and the full deity of the Father. Furthermore, we believe, as verse 4, Five says there is one Lord and one faith. Uh, your pastor a moment ago articulated a missionary concern in his comments and in his prayer, and the fact of the matter is we are missionary-minded people. Uh, we are a missionary-committed people. Why? Because we do not believe there are many lords. We believe there's one Lord. And we do not believe there are many faiths that will take you to God. We're not Hindus who believe there are many avenues to God. We're not theological liberals who believe that all roads lead to heaven. We don't believe that. And if you do believe that, I don't know why in the world you're here today. Well, I just like to hang out with people. I can hang out with people in a lot of places that don't require me to get up on Sunday morning and sit in pews and listen to the guy wax eloquent or uneloquent for 35 or 40 minutes. I could do other things with my time. But no, if you really do believe there's only one God and only one Savior, and only one faith, and his name is Jesus, then you will probably give your life to certain things and neglect other things. Southeastern Seminary, this seminary that you support and pray for, 
calls itself a Great Commission Seminary. In fact, if you come on our campus, you'll hear very quickly the idea of every classroom, a Great Commission classroom, and every professor, a Great Commission professor, and every student, a Great Commission student, who turns out to be a graduate, a Great Commission graduate, who goes out and serves and leads and builds Great Commission churches. Why? Because we're absolutely convinced that without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you will die and you will go to hell. And there's still billions around planet Earth who do not have any access or at least inadequate access to the gospel. And Carl F.H. Henry, the great Baptist theologian, was right. The gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. There is one Lord and one faith, and that Lord's name is Jesus. We commit ourselves to believe the Bible and what it teaches. I pick up the pace. Number three, we commit ourselves to exercise the gifts God has given us for his glory. We commit ourselves to exercise the gifts God has given us for his glory. If you're here this morning, and you really are a born-again follower of Jesus. God has given you spiritual gifts, at least one, probably more than one. Now, nobody has all of them, but God has given you spiritual gifts for the very purpose of making this church stronger for his glory. You say, well, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Well, you need to learn what your spiritual gift is. And then once you learn what it is, you need to be exercising it. You need to be active in doing it. Look at what he says there in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us, that includes you and me, according to the measure of Christ's gift. And so he's going to make an argument that when Christ ascended into heaven, uh, on the one hand, he took with him a bunch of captives, a bunch of prisoners, and on the other hand, he sent down to us a bunch of gifts so that his body might function efficiently and appropriately. So let's just kind of do a little running commentary in verses 7 through 10. So grace was given to each one of us. Nobody was left out. According to the measure of Christ's gift, well, Paul explained to us how this gift thing worked out. Well, let me quote for you Psalm 68, 18. When he ascended on high, that is when Jesus went back to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father, he led host a bunch of captives. He led a host of prisoners. You say, well, what did he take with him when he went back to heaven? Sin, death, hell, the grave, those great enemies that have afflicted humanity since Genesis chapter 3. He took all of them with him, and then on the other hand, he gave gifts to men. So in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions of the earth, talking about his crucifixion and his burial. And so he who descended into the grave is the one who also ascended far above all things into the heavens that he might fill all things. And one of the ways he fills all things is by giving his children gifts so that his children can function efficiently, function appropriately, function in a healthy kind of way to make the church what he saved the church to be. Now, I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but let me just make a preparatory statement. If you are here today, and you again would say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have repented of my sin, 
I put my faith and trust in Christ. When I stand before God and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? You're not going to say, because I was a good person, because you're not a good person. There are none good, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. The only people who go to heaven are not good people. Those who go to heaven are forgiven people, bad people covered by the blood of Christ and the amazing grace of God. So if you fall into that category, I know I belong to him then you need to understand this morning he has also given you spiritual gifts for the health of this local body of believers, which leads us then to our fourth observation. We should commit ourselves to honor the godly leaders God has given us. We should commit ourselves to honor the godly leaders that God has given us. In verse 11, he tells us that some of the gifts that God gave to his body were apostles, prophets. They were foundational. Uh, they're not around anymore in my theological judgment. But he also gave us evangelists, and he gave us, and I don't like the ESV translation here. It says the shepherds and the teachers. I much prefer the translation, the pastor teacher, the pastor teacher. Now, just stay with me for a moment. Spiritual gifts are found in four places in the Bible, four places in the Bible. It's very easy to remember. When I teach systematic theology at the seminary and we get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, I will always ask the question, list for me the four places where spiritual gifts are found in the New Testament. It's very easy. It's two chapter 12s and two chapter 4s. So that's easy to remember. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and is also in... 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12. So we go in order. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Then it's also found in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. Now, if I work backwards, I can tell you that basically all the gifts can kind of be categorized under two big categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts, all right? But the longest list of them is found in 1 Corinthians 12, and Romans 12, but here in Ephesians 4, he wants to specifically focus on the gifts that God gives us in terms of leadership, and so he says, God gave us the apostles, God gave us the prophets, but they're gone now, there are no apostles today, uh, there are no prophets today, God gave us evangelists, both those who are very effective in sharing the gospel, but also those who can train us to share the gospel, and then he says, and God gave us pastor teachers. Yes, the idea of shepherding is exactly what the word pastoring means, but God gave us shepherds. God gave us spiritual leaders. And let me tell you something, and hear me well. And I, I've never been here before, may never come back. I don't have a dog in the fight. I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches. You will never be the church God wants you to be. But having a congregation that loves, supports, and follows its leadership. You'll never have a great church, never, without having a people that love, support, and follow its leadership. You say, well, I know why you say that, because you're a pastor. Well, I got news for you. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm just a regular, normal member of Wake Crossroads Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, just a regular, normal member. You say, so you have a, a spiritual leader. I do. 
His name is Bill Boyer. He's my pastor, been my pastor now for almost 12 years. And you say, what do you do? I love him. I pray for him. And I follow him. You say, what if he does something you don't agree with? That's not too bad. Not too bad for Brother Bill, too bad for Danny. Because God didn't call Danny Aiken to be the spiritual leader of that church. He called Bill Boyer to be the spiritual leader of that church. And so unless he does something that is illegal or immoral or unethical or unbiblical, I'm not even going to follow him. Uh, I will die for him. In fact, I'll tell you something more than that. I'll kill for him. So if you come against my pastor, you'll have to go through me because I'm going to take a stand to support the man of God that he put to lead and guide our church. Now, he leads, he guides, he's a shepherd. But shepherds do lead the sheep. And sheep get in really serious trouble when they're not being led and guided by the shepherd. And so God blesses our churches, and God expects us to honor those who he has given us as godly leaders. Number five, we should also commit ourselves to do the work of the ministry that God has called us to do. Now, so many Baptist churches are wrong-headed here. So many Baptist churches think that we hire a pastor to do all the work of the ministry, and the Bible could not be more opposed to that theology than it is. In fact, it says it's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. You say, well, you get that. Well, let's just look at what it says there in verse 11, verse 12. He gave us pastor teachers. He gave us shepherds and teachers to what end? To equip the saints for their work of ministry. In other words, your pastor is primarily here to train you. Your pastor is primarily here to teach you to do what? Your work of ministry. In fact, I tell my guys at the seminary, you know, your ultimate ambition is to work yourself out of a job. So that if you drop dead tomorrow, your church will be just fine because you've equipped the body. You've equipped every believer to do their work of ministry. So God has called you to do some type of work in this church. I don't know what that is. God knows. And if you ask him, he'll show you. Now, you say, well, I, I don't like the idea of, of work of ministry. That means I may have to be up, in a, uh, up on a platform, and I might have to be in front of people, and, and that type of thing makes, makes me nervous. Let me tell you something. Probably the godliest person I've ever known in my life was my mother. Emma Lou Aiken was a godly, godly, godly woman. She was a spiritual giant. Everybody that knew Emmalou loved Emmalou. Everybody that knew Emmalou respected Emmalou. Everybody that knew Emmalou loved Emmalou Aiken. Now, my mother had a high school education. My mother never one time in her entire life stood on a platform like this. Had we put her up here, she would have died of a stroke immediately. She'd have been out. It would have so terrified her. You say, well, what did she do? She worked in the kitchen. Uh, what did she do? She taught Sunday school to children. What did she do in her latter years? She and my dad visited three different nursing homes every single week. Just she, would, she could play the piano. He could bring a little Bible lesson, and they would just love on people, many of whom nobody ever came to see. And then she died of Alzheimer's in her early 70s. By the way, at the end of her life, when she could hardly speak at all, when she would get distressed and when she would not know what was going on, uh, she would just scream out sometimes, help me, Jesus. 
when her mind was gone and her life was almost over and she could not figure out what was going on anymore, she would just scream out, help me, Jesus. And you see, my mother never had any real platform uh, in this life. I'll tell you something, folks. When we get to heaven, I'll guarantee you, Emily Aiken is going to be very, very, very close to the throne because she was just a faithful, simple servant exercising the spiritual gift of service that God gave my mother. And the fact of the matter is, some of you have gifts that may not be all that spectacular in terms of notoriety in this life, but let me remind you, there is a Heavenly Father and a Savior who's paying minute attention to what you do with the gift that He has given you. We commit ourselves to do the work of ministry God has called us to do. Number six, we commit ourselves to build up our people as they mature toward Christ-likeness. We commit ourselves to build up our people as they mature toward Christ's likeness. He tells us there in verse 12 that he gave us shepherds and teachers, pastor teachers, to equip the saints for what? Their work of ministry for what? For building up the body of Christ. He wants the body to grow numerically. He wants the body to grow spiritually. So he says there in verse 13, the goal ultimately is until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Secondly, the knowledge and the idea is a full knowledge of the Son of God. Number three, that we might mature into full manhood. That is, that we might reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Do you realize this morning that God did not save you primarily to take you to heaven? No, God saved you primarily to conform you to the image of of his son and to make you more like Jesus. And so he wants us to build up one another toward maturity, which is defined as being like Jesus. Number seven, he wants us to commit ourselves to remain true to the faith and never compromise. True to the faith and never compromise. He says there that his goal is that we would grow to be a mature man, verse 13 that we would reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 13, so that in order that, and here's the goal, that we no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by the craftiness in deceitful scheming. He understands that you and I are always going to be assaulted with false teaching. He understands that you and I are always going to be tempted to compromise the faith. We live in a day where the church is really going through quite a serious identity crisis. And the church is not really sure anymore what it is or what it's supposed to be in the future. I mean, let's just cut to the chase. What are, what are we going to do with this same-sex marriage thing? I mean, what are we going to do? Just how are we going to navigate this thing? What are you going to do? Some of you are in this room are as old as me or older. What are you going to do when it's your grandchild who says as a female that she wishes to marry another female or your grandson says he wants to marry another male? What are you going to do? What are you going to do in terms of whether they are welcomed here or not? Well, they aren't welcomed to our church. Really? Then how are they ever going to hear the gospel? How are they ever going to hear about Jesus? I'm not talking about membership. 
Coming as a guest is one thing. Being a part of that community of faith is another thing. But what are you going to do? How are you going to navigate these tumultuous waters when the culture is so rapidly going in one direction? And let me say it to you this way. It's not enough just to say, I just don't believe that's right. It's not enough. There are a lot of folks today in our churches that just, if I can just be blunt for a moment, are just biblically ignorant. And if I were to put you against the wall and put a gun in front of your face and ask you to make an argument as to why you believe certain type of sexual behavior is wrong, you wouldn't be able to find the verses in a Bible drill. You wouldn't know. You just know, well, that's just what I know we're supposed to believe. Well, that's not good enough anymore. You need to know not only what you believe, you need to know why you believe. And that means you are so well-versed in this book that you will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes down the road. And when the pressure builds, and it's going to build, and when the temperature goes up, and it is going to go up, you will know how to stand in the truth, but to do so with grace, with compassion, with kindness, with an understanding that were it not for the grace of God, that could be me. If you ever lose sight of that, you're going to become a Pharisee. And Pharisees are good, really, for nothing. Certainly not very much. And so the Bible says we commit ourselves to remain true to the faith and never compromise. But then the next verse that comes beautifully tells us how to do that. Number eight, we commit ourselves to always speak the truth in love. We commit ourselves to always speak the truth in love. It says there in verse 15, rather than being led along these false lines by these winds of doctrine and this human cunning and this craftiness and deceitful scheming, we will rather speak the truth in love as we grow up in every way into him. We'll speak the truth, but we'll speak it in love. One of my favorite verses, by the way, when I do marriage seminars, I always tell a husband and a wife, you want to speak the truth always, but always in love. And if you can't speak it in love, then can I just be blunt for a moment? Then just shut up. Just shut up. Because if you can't speak it in love, then though you may be saying the right thing, you're saying it in the wrong way. And God is concerned not only that we say the right thing, God is concerned that we say it in the right way. And so just using my one analogy for a moment, will I continue to say to people that God's design from creation is that a man and a woman unite in covenant marriage? Yes, I will say that to the day that I will die. So will I ever support same-sex marriage? No, I will not. Will I ever marry two men? No, I will not, because two men coming together is not a marriage as the Bible defines it. Two women coming together is not a marriage as the Bible defines it. But will I do it with anger, and will I do it with a condescending attitude, and will I do it with my finger pointed at them, telling them if they don't get right, they'll die and go to hell with kind of a sneer on my face? I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? I would only do that if I did not really have within my heart the love that should always envelop the truth when we speak it. Speak the truth, absolutely. But speak the truth in love. Number nine, 
We should commit ourselves to always honor Christ as the head of the church. He tells us there in verse 15, yes, we speak the truth in love, and as we do, we should grow up in every way into him who is the head, that is, into Christ. We never lose sight of the fact that the king of the church is Jesus. We never lose sight of the fact that the leader of the church is Jesus. We never lose sight of the fact that in all things it is Jesus and Jesus alone <clears throat> who is to have the preeminence. And so we commit ourselves to always honor Christ as the head of the church. And then number 10, we commit ourselves to do our part. We commit ourselves to do our part to grow and build up our church in love. He says again in verse 15, we want to grow up into him who is the head, that is to Christ, from whom, verse 16, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Now here it is. When each part is working properly, that means I'm doing my part, that means all of you are doing your part when each part is working properly. And what happens when that occurs? It makes the body grow. And as the body grows, what does it do? It builds itself up. And in what context does it build itself up? It builds itself up in love. John Piper is a mentor to me, wonderful, faithful Bible teacher. And John Piper says, when it comes to the church as the body of Christ, this is how we should understand ourselves today. And I close with this very insightful statement from this very faithful Bible teacher. Today on planet Earth, King Jesus has a body that the Bible calls the church. It has eyes that see the needs of the world. It has ears that hear the cries of the nations. It has a mouth that can proclaim the gospel. It has legs that can walk, arms that can serve, feet that can be blistered, and backs that can be whipped, all for the sake of Christ and the gospel. This body makes Christ real to this world. So, our goal is not to build buildings, grow budgets, merely acquire knowledge, or be captivated by political or social agendas. Our goal is to build men of God and women of God. Our aim is to fill this world with Christ and his gospel. Our gospel strategies then should reflect this. Our church life should reflect this. It is this and this alone that sets the agenda for the church. Any other agenda will fall short. Any other agenda is not worth having. And I agree. I pray that you do too. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you for these verses in Ephesians that help us understand so clearly what it means for us to be uh, the body of Christ, uh, to be a faithful church, to uh, focus on those things that you would have us focus on. Lord, most churches in the world today
uh, certainly those that believe the Bible. Uh, They don't do bad things. Uh, They do good things. But, Lord, keep us from getting busy doing many good things that we neglect the best and most important things. Lord, in these verses, we've seen very clearly what really matters to you when it comes to the church. And so, Lord, may those same things matter to us that we would indeed bring great honor and glory to your name, not only in our church, but across our, our state, across our nation, and yes, Lord, around the world, that every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, too, would know the glorious gospel that has saved us. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.